Today, why faith is more than wishful thinking and better than gratitude. Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So there's a sense in which we talk about faith, and this is a, by the way, episode uh, from an episode, wow, from Psalm 33. Uh, so it's a, it's a scripture show today, just to let you know ahead of time. Uh, the, the thing I'm starting with faith is not what will stay on every moment of the conversation, but it is where what we're going to return to, and you'll see why when we get there. And it's a broad term. Faith and faithfulness are intertwined in ways we've talked about before. So we'll come, we'll come back to all of that by the time we get to the end of the psalm. But to start out, let me set the context for why this is a question at all about faith and wishful thinking, and then you'll see in the psalm itself the relationship between faith and gratitude, which is, it's not like they're competing with each other, but there is a difference in the demeanor that we have in our attitude of gratitude and then our attitude of faith. And so let me start out with this observation first, because it it has a lot to do with what's going on in the psalm, and that is the relationship between faith and the things that make us question our faith or uh, the things that cause other people not to have faith at all, so like skepticism. So when you when we start out talking about faith, there are a lot of people, and this comes from a sort of Freudian perspective. I'm not saying it begins with Freud, but it certainly matured in him. It is matured in him. Uh, and that is that there are people who think of faith as wishful thinking. You want there to be a heaven, and therefore you have faith that there is a heaven. Uh, you want there to be a father figure in, in your life, and therefore you believe that there is a God who is your father, and so on. And the wish fulfillment idea comes from Freud's perspective on life entirely. You have psychological needs, and so you manifest those in some way in the relationships that you have, and so on. Uh, and I know there's more to Freud than that, and I, I am uh, pretty familiar with Freud. I've done a lot of reading in Freud and and spent a lot of time with his ideas and how they influence culture, and I've taught them to students and so on. So I, I appreciate some of the stuff that Freud brings in the sense that he has a grasp on how uh, the human psyche and culture work together to make us the kind of creatures that we are. That's interesting. I obviously don't agree with a lot of his conclusions, even people who follow his uh, way of looking at the world don't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions. That's all fine. So, but I run into this where people will communicate that idea without even ascribing it to Freud, but they'll communicate that idea and they'll say, oh, your faith is just wishful thinking. That's all there is to it. And my response to them very often will be, in other words, they're saying to me, well, you believe in heaven just because you want there to be a beautiful place for you to go after you die and so on. 
uh, you believe in heaven because you want there to be some reason that we go through the miseries we do in this life and still be able to say there's hope in the world and so on like that. So when I hear people say that to me or when I'm in in an engaged discussion with a skeptic, for instance, about something like this, uh, I will, and this is sort of snarky, and, you know, the level of uh, sarcasm that I put into it or sensitivity that I put into it changes with the conversation, believe it or not. You may think it's just inherently snarky because it came from me. But the point is uh, that I will respond with something equivalent to this. Oh, you think my faith is wishful thinking? I find your skepticism to be wishful thinking. The idea that you you think the idea that I would live through this life and not be able to go to heaven is too troubling for me, and so I just I just manifest this idea of heaven and live in it in my in my faith. But I think your skepticism is doing exactly the same thing that you're looking at your life and thinking to yourself, I've lived this way for this long, and I don't ever want to have to give an answer to it. So for me, uh, looking at the way we've lived and thinking to ourselves, you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to have to answer to anyone for what I've done in this life. I find that to be wishful thinking. Now, here's the thing about that conversation, which I've just pretended like somebody had. Somebody on one side had wishful thinking as what faith is, and I think wishful thinking is what skepticism is. That conversation doesn't prove either way is right. I mean, you know, the fact that somebody thinks that my faith is wishful thinking doesn't prove that it is wishful thinking. And even if my faith in something objective is in something that, if it exists, would satisfy my wish, doesn't make it false. In the same sense that, Skepticism, if it is wishful thinking, isn't made false by the fact that its fulfillment, which it wouldn't do this, but I get why some people think it would, if its fulfillment actually did satisfy the wish of someone who is that skeptic. It doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it false. It doesn't make it true. It just says to both people, you know, you can't, you can't use that argument to discount the other person's position. That is, both statements, the idea that faith is wish fulfillment and skepticism is wish fulfillment, they're just observations that are moderately applicable to a given situation. But but here's the thing. There is this reality that we have faith, and in this conversation you can see it because both are fulfillments of this desire. I want there to be a heaven. I don't want there to be a God I answer to. The reality of the relationship between people who have faith and people who don't, or people who have faith and people who have skepticism, who are actively skeptical, is actually more uh, intricate than you think because we have faith for exactly the same reason Others don't have faith, and we don't always pay attention to that reality. And so as we're going through this psalm, I think that's one of the things we discover is that faith provides for us a response, a legitimate response to the things everybody confronts. And some of those people confront those things with skepticism, others with faith, 
but it's because of exactly the same things that we're being confronted with. And this, this is my point about this part of the conversation. And I will say that even the response, those who have, and I'm putting it in air quotes here, but you can't see my hands, so I need to tell you, faith, even the faith that we say we have in those moments is not actually probably as solid or as good as it ought to be. And this psalm invites us to have a better version of that faith, and God deserves the better response. So let's read through the 33rd Psalm and then take it in three parts and sort of understand what's happening with it. And that the fundamental idea here is that we ought to have a better response to the things that are happening around us than even the faith that we normally, and, and I am projecting here. I mean, this is me talking about my faith and the fact that it ought to be better. But I don't think I'm the only person who has a faith that's like this and that ought to be better. And so we ought to have a better response, a better faith in response to the things that are going on around us. So there are, though, these things that provoke faith in us and provoke gratitude in us in the opening part of this psalm. So let's, uh, let's read through the psalm and make sense of it here. So starting with the first five verses. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, Praise befits the upright. Now, you hear this. Uh, uh, Break out in praise. Shout for joy. Okay, right. That's verse one. Verse two, give thanks. So this response of gratitude, right? Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of of 10 strings. We'll come back and talk about the music in a moment. Sing to him, more music, a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts for the word of Yahweh, the Lord, is upright, and all his works, uh, all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And this is an interesting contrast that we're given. If you didn't hear the contrast, it goes from this shout for joy in verse 1 down to the earth being filled with the steadfast love of the Lord, Yahweh, in verse 5. This is a, that, that is a stark contrast, even if you didn't notice it. So I'll clarify where that is. So I don't know if you've paid attention to this or noticed it. I, I mentioned it a few times in my conversations about everything. It always comes up because it's an interesting feature of being human, that we only feel what touches. So I (laughs) I don't know if you understand what I mean by that, but it's important. Uh, I'll clarify. We only feel what touches. That is, we only sense, so feel is the one sense that I pulled out in that statement. We only sense what changes. So you don't feel everything that is in contact with your body right now. You don't feel all of the things that are a part of pressing against you right now. You only feel what, and then we use the word touches to make the point of what is momentarily touching you, what has changed. You only sense change. You ignore constants because they are constant. If you tried to pay attention to all of that, it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, You would have to be noticing all of the things that are happening 100% of the time to 100% of your being 
and that means you couldn't pay attention to the things that are actually changing around your being, or at least not appropriate attention to those things. So, you know, as an example, I would, to- I, I, you know, I, I realize now looking back on it, I, I sort of intellectually tormented my children in ways. Uh, they enjoyed it, I think. They laughed about it, or at least they laughed, you know, like people do at a dad joke. Uh, and a lot of these come across, I think, as dad jokes. But for instance, I'd be walking with my, uh, I had two little girls, and they're still little, and they're still uh, girls, but I'm just saying they're, you know, adults now. But when they were little children, like four and five and six years old, or maybe up to eight years old or something like that, uh, you know, and you, you have to reach down to hold their hand, that kind of uh, image is what I have in the back of my mind for when I did this, and I, I, I don't know how many times I did it. You know, you tell the same joke over and over, so no telling how many times I did this. But I'd be holding their hand and walking, and uh, I would say, uh, stop touching me. And they would say, I didn't touch you. And I would say, yeah, you did. And they would say, no, I didn't. And I would say, I would hold up their hand right in front of their face and go, look, you're touching me right now. And they would, oh, you know, they would do the silly response. But, and I was making a silly point, which is that they were touching me the whole time. But, of course, they didn't notice they were touching me because we were holding hands while I was walking them across the street or down the, you know, whatever. And so the, the point of that is that we use the word touch to mean the momentary contact that we make. I touch, you know, I'm going to reach out and touch someone, right? But in reality, the touching was going on the whole time, but we only notice the things that change. It's the same with our vision or our hearing or anything else. And you know how it is. If you have a background noise, we lived next to a railroad track for years. When we first, you know, thought about buying the house, it was like, oh, that train makes a lot of noise. And they, you know, the response, and it was such a good deal we bought the house anyway. But the, the response of the realtor was, ah, you'll, you won't even notice it after a while. That seemed hard to believe. I mean, we're talking rattle the windows kind of sounds. Didn't, we, ne- we never even noticed it. After just a few months, we never even heard the train anymore. It just wasn't there. It's amazing how the things that are constant, that are regular, can fade into the background. Music is the same way. Music is what it is because songs get our attention because they have a beginning and they have an end. The things that we're doing in this psalm in order to respond to God are these momentary eruptions. Uh, Shouting for joy is only shouting for joy if you weren't shouting before you were shouting or after you were shouting. Get the idea? Otherwise, it's just more noise. Shout for joy means do something in this moment. Have a brief eruption of praise. Singing a song means let's start the song and then let's end the song, despite some songs you think might go on forever and ever. They don't. They all stop. Otherwise, you wouldn't know they were going on to begin with. This is the idea of these melodies. So we're, we're erupting into praise in these moments that break through the surface of the world around us in response to God for what? And this is super important at the beginning of the psalm that he lays this out in these five verses. What is it we're responding to? Well, in our experience, we're responding to the momentary interaction of God with the world, which we'll talk about in a moment in different ways. But that's not what the psalmist is setting us up for in this opening section of the psalm in the first five verses. What he's setting us up for is to, what he's setting us up to see is that while our responses are momentary, oh, God did something, I'm shouting for joy. What God did was faithfulness. 
What he has is faithfulness. What he did is steadfast. It's constant. And so in verse 4, why are we singing to him a song? Why are we shouting with loud shouts as he ends verse 3? Begins and ends with shouts. Because in verse 4, the word of Yahweh is upright. That's not momentary. That's constant. All of his works are done in faithfulness. Amunah, constant, steady, faithful. He loves righteousness and justice, not in a moment. Oh, I've changed my mind. I now love righteousness and justice. This is the faithfulness of God. And so he says it. The earth is filled, not, and this is, this is important by the end of the psalm as well, not the earth has these momentary, like lava-like eruptions of God's mercy or steadfast love. It's not that. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. So while we may only notice what shows up and seems like change, so occasionally we see God's involvement in the world, we even call it a miracle, a term that I've talked about before, uh, which is you know not really a biblical term. I don't mean there aren't terms that are properly translated as miracle. There are, but they're all terms that indicate something we don't understand. We think, oh, it's amazing. God actually got involved in the world again. That's, that's absurd. In reality, it's, it's like what Paul is saying on Mars Hill in Acts 17. The, the God who created the world, this is what Paul is saying to the, to the Athenians, the God who created the world, so yeah, he's, he was momentarily involved in the world and his creation, is the same one who gives to everyone. And I'm quoting Paul. When I say this, I'm not, I'm not extrapolating. The God who created the world is the one who gives to everyone life and breath and everything. So while, while we think of the world as this place where on a rare occasion, if we provoke him enough, God might miraculously get involved in the world again and actually put his hand back down here and do something instead of the world just running itself with him watching from a distance. That's how we think of it. That's not how the Bible describes it at all. And that's not how we're supposed to see God's involvement in the world, so that even though we may only notice it occasionally and therefore erupt into a shout or a song, what we're supposed to see is that his steadfast love is filling the earth, not occasionally erupting in the earth, but filling the earth, giving to everyone life and breath and everything, as Paul says it, or as he says it to the church at Colossae, that in him all things hold together. It's in his involvement. Okay, so you get this opening idea. This is the contrast, that the things that cause us to break out into these tiny or brief eruptions of praise, the things that cause us to do that are actually constant. They are eternal. So what form does that take in the rest of the psalm? So here's, here's where it goes. In the first part of, of the, the rest of the psalm, verses 6 through 12, they all go together to make this point. It goes through it twice. It sort of goes through the same pattern, the same lesson, two different times. So in verses 6 through 12, it's going to come in this form, that the Creator's tiniest nation— that is, the nation that belongs to the Creator, even if it's the tiniest nation on earth, the, creation, the Creator's smallest nation, outlives the creation's greatest nations. 
right? So the greatest nations of this world are not as great as the tiniest nation that belongs to the world's creator. That's the idea. So here's how it says it, in, starting in verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host were made. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. So you can hear the full expanse of the creation there. From the heavens above, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth. And then he gathers all the seas. The seas are the deep, the thing that's below. And so this is the conception of the world, which becomes really important by the end of this. The conception of the world is there are heavens above and there are waters below. And the thing that's in between, the world where we stand, belongs to the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, in the language of Exodus 20, for instance. So he gathers the waters of the sea. So you can see he's, he's created everything and he controls everything. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deep into storehouses. So all of these things belong to him and he is holding them. Let all the earth, in verse 8, fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it didn't just come to be, it stood firm. So in his speaking, things come into existence, and under his commandment, they stand firm. So it's his commandment that holds these things firm. In verses 10 through 12, he says it this way. The Lord, now he applies it to the nations that live in this world, right? And he's going to repeat this, this whole pattern. He's going to say it again. So in verse 10, he says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Absolutely, they, they become nothing. This is in contrast to the everything he described above, which God created with his word. God speaks, and everything comes into existence and continues to exist, stands firm. The counsel of the nations, they speak. Oh, they murmur together and they counsel. The Lord brings the counsel of the This is a brilliant poem. The psalm is a brilliant poem. The Lord brings the counsel of the nation, the words of the nations that they utter to each other, to nothing. That nothing in contrast to the everything of creation. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. He commands and it stands firm. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. You see how explicit the contrast is now. The plans of his heart stand to all generations. So there's nothing, and then there is forever. Yahweh forever. The counsel of the nations, psh, so brief, it's not even worth mentioning. It's nothing. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, now And the point here is that they are blessed despite how nothing they would be if they didn't belong to Yahweh. Everything is contingent on the relationship with the only one whose words make anything actually be. He, he causes things to be. And so the description of Israel from the beginning is important here, that the nation whose God is Yahweh, obviously this is Israel. And the point is that he has chosen them as his people, if you go back to the language that Moses uses with Israel in Deuteronomy 7, he makes this point. 
when he's standing there, Moses speaking to them before they go into the promised land where they're going to go without him. He speaks to them and says, declares to them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, Moses is saying this to the people of Israel, you are the nation whose God is Yahweh. This is how he says it though. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You belong to Yahweh. You are his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the same contrast being made. This is that language being brought into the psalm. It was not because, what, you had great counsel, you had great power, you had so many people, you were such a vast multitude, I knew that my name could ride you to fame. It's the opposite of that. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The small, Israel is chosen as the smallest among all the peoples who are nothing, and yet God makes from their nothing the greatest of all the peoples of the earth. And this is not just about Israel as a nation. It's about the people of God and saying, it doesn't matter that you're smaller than the nations who are surrounding you. It doesn't matter that they've made their plans and have their empires. What matters is that you belong to the God whose words create everything and the only one whose words can sustain anything. And you're his. So you can look at Assyria and think, oh, what a mighty nation, and Egypt, and oh, what a powerful empire. You can think all of that about them, but know that the smallest nation that belongs to the creator is greater than the greatest nation that belongs to the creation. There's a contrast. The contrast is going to be repeated, but now not in terms of just becoming his people or existing, to begin with, but what's happening in our ongoing walk with God? Our ongoing experiences in this world, the very experiences that make us doubt whether it's wise to belong to God, that make us question our faith, or that cause other people to look for their own solutions. Well, look, the world's not working for me, so I'm going to use my own wisdom, and I'm going to gain power, and I'm going to aggrandize power and reach and control, and I'm going to exercise the things in this world that will make my life meaningful. What happens in the contrast there in the same way? So here we are, starting in verse 13. And again, this follows the exact pattern of what's above. If you happen to look at the psalm and you want to look at the details, I'll say it very briefly. Verses 13 through 15 put in the context of God acting as judge, the same things that were said in verses six through nine about God being the creator, right? And so the details of what's happening in verses 16 through 18, talking about what the nations actually do, the king and the warrior and the army and so on, are exactly the same as what he says about the council of the nations in verse 10 through 12. So the the idea here is that in verses six through 12, you have the creator and his relationship with his creation, And then in verses 13 through 19, you have, and the way we put it lately, is sustainer. You know, you have the God who is still overseeing the things in the world, the judge. So it's really creator and judge is what it's about. 
So, in, so for those of you who want to go back and look at the details of the psalm, you'll see that. So starting in verse 13, the, the part that compares with verses 6 through 9, remember in verses 6 through 9, he creates the heavens by the word of the Lord. The heavens were made. He gathers the water in heaps, and the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Okay, verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven, the heavens he created, and he sees all the children of men, the inhabitants of the world that he created where he stored up the waters and, you know, and so on. So he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions not just the heavens above, the seas below, the place where the inhabitants of the world stand, but the one who also fashions the hearts of them all and observes their deeds. So he's looking down from heaven. He's seeing the children of men. Now, notice how much of this is about him and what he sees, what he is observing. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the children of men. He looks out on the inhabitants of the, of the earth, and he observes all of their deeds. This, the one who fashioned their hearts to begin with. So he created each of these beings and gave them the heart that they have and then observes their deeds. And in all of this, looking and seeing, and again, looking and observing in verses 14 and 15, we're going to see that repeated in verse 18 when he says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And I'll mention why in a moment. So there's the first part of this section. The next part of this section is in verses 16 through 19. And again, remember in verses 10 through 12, this is the part that's repeated here, in verses 10 through 12, it's about the council of the nations and then the council of Yahweh and then the, the people that he chose. In verses 10 through 12, it's about the king of this nation, the warrior and the power that he has in his efforts to fight these wars and so on, and the fact that our safety is actually in the Lord. So verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse, in verse 17, is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Verse 18, behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And this is the first time we've emerged on the concepts of the particular things that we're facing. This is delivering their soul from death and keeping them alive in famine. So these are not people who in the moment are being blessed. These are moments who are facing catastrophe. They're failing. They're facing death. They're, fa they're facing famine. And yet the eye of the Lord is on them. Not just, not just seeing them, and this is the point. He's, he's not acting simply as the creator observing, well, let's see what's happening in that world I made down there. When he says he looks down from heaven, he means he's judging from heaven. When he says he sees all the children of man, he's not just neutrally observing what's going on, he's doing something about it. But when I say, oh, he's looking down and he's judging the earth, it's true, but that that's not the point. The point isn't, oh, I, I have judgment for the earth that I created. The point is he's still engaged in it. He's still doing things here. And the fact that he says this, behold, the eye of the Lord 
is on those who fear him, we translate into God's watching you and you ought to be afraid of him because he's gonna slap you down if you do something you're not supposed to do. He can bring judgment. Obviously, he does bring judgment on people who are opposing those who fear him. And yet when he says the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, I don't think we're supposed to take it the way we do with the children's song, right? So in a previous episode, when we talked about uh, the next, the very next psalm, he uses this same illustration of the Lord's eyes being on us or the psalmist looking, uh, watching us as he gives us the instructions for what we're supposed to do. It's not just him saying, I see what you're doing. It's him saying, I'm going to be with you as you go through it. The eyes of the Lord, as I mentioned, run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is perfect toward him, meaning those, those whose uh, hearts are fully reliant upon God, who are dependent upon his rescue. He's watching. So when we act in obedience, he is attending to that. He's going to catch us because he didn't just create a world, give us rules, and say, good luck, follow the rules, do the best you can. But instead, his eyes are on those who fear him. The Lord watches both those who fail and those who have faith. He sees what's happening. And so what's our response supposed to be? Well, this is, these are the last three verses, and they match up with the beginning of the psalm to make the point that we'd made from the beginning. So in this one, it is our soul waits. So starting in verse 20, our soul waits for Yahweh. So in a world filled with death and filled with famine, filled with people who are making their plans and plotting to be secure and take care of themselves, but in a world with people whose plans don't succeed and those who already realize they need to rely on something greater, the better response, not only to the needs that we have, but also to the faithfulness of God to meet those needs, to his interventions in the world as we think of them. When he shows up and rescues us in that last moment, whatever, the response that we should have better than shouting, because you'll, you'll hear as, we're, as I'm reading through it in just a moment, the response here at the end is not shout for joy. It's not sing the song. Even though we ought to shout for joy, we ought to erupt into praise when we see what God has done so faithfully. But what we're supposed to recognize by the end of the psalm is that he didn't suddenly show up and begin to be faithful. The earth is filled with his steadfast love. And so the way he says it in verse 20, starting in verse 20, is our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help. He is our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Not just the moments where he's become involved. We trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, the earth was filled with that earlier, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we see your momentary interventions. No, no, no. Even as we hope in you. So now it's not shouting, it's waiting, being glad, trusting, and hoping. That is, and I'm making this point again, having faith, faithfulness, for the same reason other people don't want to have it. Where's God in this desert land of death and famine? 
And the psalmist's response is, it's everywhere. You're just not seeing it. The earth is filled with his steadfast love. You're just not seeing it. I grew up in West Texas, in Crane, Texas, for seven years, south of Odessa. I mean, it's a desert. It's a, it is a barren desert. Uh, there's nothing out there to get but oil and natural gas and beautiful people and a wonderful country. I love it, so I'm not being critical of it. It's a desert. But when I go out there, I am I am awed by the beauty that's out there. And part of it, it helps that I grew up out there. So I, I love it. But I remember seeing, and I don't remember the details. I, I was too young. I was a tiny child when, I, when these things were happening. But somehow or another, I have memories of my dad or some other men uh, digging in the ground. And not just once, but pretty regularly. And probably with equipment most of the time. But the time I'm remembering right now not a moment because I don't remember the date or time or anything or even where it was. I just know it was out there near Crane. They were digging for water. They were digging in the ground to get to water or they were digging for something else and got to water. But the point is they dug down far enough, not, and this wasn't a drill. This was men with shovels. It was, it was crazy. It was weird. They were digging down and they started hitting mud. And I'm like, what is going on? I'm just a little kid. You know, I'm watching, I'm, I'm mystified they dug down and found water, and I don't remember them ever not getting to it, even when they were digging wells or something. Now, there may have been times, but I don't remember it ever happening. They always found water. Seeing adults dig for water in the desert, what looks to me, you know, I was a kid, like desert, and always finding it. You know, that's part of the worldview that people had historically, sort of an archaic worldview but the worldview that's described in this psalm where the heavens are above and the sea is below, it's not just a deep ocean, it's ocean below the land also. That makes sense when every time you dig far enough, you eventually run into water. When you go downhill far enough, you get to the Dead Sea. No matter what you do, no matter where you turn, if you go down far enough, you get to water. So thinking of the waters being below your feet and filling the earth, makes perfect sense in their context, and that's in the Hebrew worldview. That's why the expression, the heavens and the earth and the sea and all the things that are in them covers the full range of the creation because you go from the top to the bottom, and at the bottom, there's always water. We, this is the reason that we have faith. So, you know, we, so I know, you know, when we would plant a tree— you would think there was, you know, how could it possibly grow? But we knew it would put down roots and it would tap into that water that was there. And those shrubs or trees, uh, we refer to them as trees. Others would might think of them as shrubs. You know, every little tree that was growing out of the ground, every bit of green grass that grew out of the ground was evidence of the water that was there that you couldn't see until there was something, some little thing that would emerge from it. And a lot of people would only have faith for reasons like that. That is, you have faith in those momentary eruptions of the things that are dependent on that water that grow into your life. So you, you heal from some disease, and suddenly you have a realization that there's a God who's in the world. But he was there the whole time. You just have this momentary eruption of an encounter with him, like seeing a tree or a shrub out in the desert. And for a lot of people, that's all, uh, that's all their faith is. The point of real faith, the point of what faith and faithfulness are, is that we know that even though we can only see these little tokens of evidence 
that God's presence is real everywhere in this desert world where death, famine are everywhere else. There's just barren sand. Oh, there's a tree over there. Hallelujah. Let's stand under the shadow of the tree. Oh, there's reconciliation over there. There was a a moment of peace over there. There was a moment of health over there. There was a moment of prosperity over there. Oh, let's stand in the shade of that and be grateful for that. Yeah, all of that's great. But what we're called to be as believers is those who tromp through the desert and even where we only see sand say, I know we are standing not on little moments of water, little blips of water, little pools of water that are underneath us, but beneath our feet, below this barren sand, below the world where all of this pain exists, where all of this disappointment exists, below it there is an ocean of God's faithfulness, constantly present. And our faith is supposed to reflect that ocean, not just, even though it certainly responds to the eruptions from that ocean that we see in the trees and the, you know, the, the flowers, the coverings. Our waiting, our hoping, our moments of prayer, our moments of reading in Scripture are us digging down in the sand to find that ocean of the Creator's faithfulness again. And it is everywhere below this dry surface. That's the better response. Not just wishful thinking, not even just gratitude, which we ought to have every time a tree emerges, right? But the faithfulness that reflects God's own faithfulness in a world that needs him and our faith. So let me add, almost as an addendum, it is an addendum, a note about the value of this lesson in our faith in the New Testament. Uh, The first church that I shared this psalm with, Psalm 33, uh, had the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, you know, communion at the end of the service. And putting it into context, I just used that psalm as the introduction to the Lord's Supper for a reason that's built into the Lord's Supper, which I've sort of neglected in decades of doing ministry and and providing communion for, uh, for, for congregants. And it was an interesting observation, so I want to share it with you here as the, as the close to this episode. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul gives us the words that Jesus gave to the disciples, right, when he was, uh, when he was going to the garden and then to his crucifixion, and when he gave them the Lord's Supper, Paul communicates it this way, and it's interesting what he brings up because it relates this balance this reality of what we're supposed to have in our faith, that it is as important in recognizing the dearth that's in this world. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. It is as important in that death that's in the world as it is in our anticipation of the resurrection. We don't just have faith because we anticipate the resurrection. We also have faith because we understand the desolation that is in the current world, that's built into the way the Lord's Supper was given to us. So let me share this with you as well. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, listen to this part, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, in Corinthians, he says it this way, for you, 
We know that he, he communicates to the disciples, which is broken for you as he breaks the bread, right? So it's built into it. It's this brokenness. But I say this for a reason because of what Paul says below, not just that it, if it has the word broken, it means this. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this body is broken on their behalf. It's almost the same as the scapegoat idea. There's a goat that you kill, but then there's a goat that, goat that goes away. In this one, the body is what's broken, and then the blood is this testament to the new life that's going to come, to the new covenant that comes. So in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And while the blood obviously has the image of death built into it, it also equally has the image of resurrection built into it because the cup is poured into the ground. It provides nutrients to the ground. We drink it. It provides nutrients to us. I know you say that about the body too, but the emphasis on the body is its brokenness. And listen to what he says next. This is what makes the point. For as often as you drink this bread, and think about this, in Paul, in you know Luke's writings, and Luke's the disciple of Paul, he's the one who reflects Paul's views, in, in, his, in, in everything that we're given, for instance, in the book of Acts, what we are a testimony to is the resurrection of Jesus. His lordship is affirmed in his resurrection. Our life is affirmed in his resurrection. Our calling is affirmed in his resurrection. And we are witnesses of his resurrection. The very phrase is present in the kerygma, the gospel that's given to us in the book of Acts. And yet listen to what he says at the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His death, after his resurrection, we're still declaring in the taking of the Lord's Supper, his death until he comes. Why is that? Because we still live in a world where death consumes everyone and everything around us. And, rem- and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes is our reminder that in this world where there is death, he demonstrates in his crucifixion the reality of his identification with that death. He knows the desert we live in. He came to the desert we live in. He was a fountain of life in the desert that we live in. And in declaring his death until he comes, we say to everyone, we know the misery that's in the world. We know the emptiness that's in the world. We know its barrenness, but we also know the fountain of life that has given us a reason to have faith. Until he comes is the reminder on the positive side of that. You proclaim the Lord's death, but you proclaim it until he returns that he also did rise, and that he has filled the creation with his steadfast love so that he demonstrates in this coming again and in his resurrection that the crucifixion is just one eruption. It is the eruption of his constant faithfulness underlying all and every moment of creation. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode.
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.